Welcome to the C-Cup podcast, brought to you by the BJA. Hello and welcome to the C-Cup podcast series. My name is Eleanor Carter, trainee editor of C-Cup, and today I'll be talking to Dr Andy Bodenham, consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine in Leeds. Welcome, Dr Bodenham. Hello. So today we'll be discussing your article, Pulmonary Atelectasis in Anaesthesia in Critical Care. This article is a great overview of the topic, discussing the mechanisms by which atelectasis occurs and how this can predispose to perioperative respiratory complications, hypoxemia and respiratory failure. In the podcast today, we will review the main points of the article, discuss some recent relevant research publications and ask practically what can anaesthetists and intensivists do to minimise and manage atelectasis in their patients. So to start off, we will discuss the pathophysiology and clinical presentation of atelectasis. So Dr Bodenham, could you explain for me exactly what atelectasis is? Well, atelectasis is collapse of small lung units, and it can either be a regional or a global phenomenon, everything from small basal collapse that probably isn't that important to complete white out of one lung. And your article describes the number of mechanisms by which atelectasis may occur. Which of these mechanisms are thought to be the most important in relation to general anaesthesia? Well, we set out, I, I suppose, perhaps a slightly theoretical model in that the tables and so on. But in reality, I suspect in most cases, it's multifactorial. In the context of anaesthesia, I think it's a supine or prone patient lying flat on the back of a tummy for some hours on end and then often surgeons in the abdomen and the chest effect of anaesthetic drugs, muscle relaxants and so on. And then perhaps even more importantly is what happens post-operatively where again the patient may be confined to bed, have an inadequate cough, pain and again all the problems of immobility possibly on a background of pre-existing respiratory disease. So you've already sort of mentioned there some of the risk factors for developing atelectasis. Are there other risk factors that contribute in, in general anaesthesia? I, I'm sure there are, you know, be it positioning the patient, laparoscopic surgery, head down tilt, obesity, fluid overload, probably the elderly, anybody with pre-existing respiratory disease. So there's a, there's a whole raft of, of different things and I, I suspect in most cases it's, it is multifactorial. And as a, a consequence of this happening, what, what are the pathological effects of atelectasis? Well, small, small amounts of atelectasis, which probably happen within any sort of general anaesthetic and surgery, are probably inconsequential in most cases in that as soon as the patient's awake at the end and coughs and splutters, you would hope that those lung units will re-expand. But if the areas of collapse are more confluent and larger, you may get hypoxia and it if it gets worse and worse, eventually the patient will develop respiratory failure and in a worst case scenario will need ventilation, CPAP or other more invasive interventions. So you've sort of uh, described obviously some of the possible clinical presentations of more severe um, forms of atelectasis. Is it easy to then distinguish between atelectasis causing respiratory complications in the post-operative period from sort of other conditions such as infection or pulmonary embolus? Not really, no. And, and I, I think, again, many of these things may exist. If you've, got, if you've got infection brewing, you're probably going to have elements of atelectasis as well. And obviously, pulmonary embolism and so on is a, a possible differential diagnosis, but the signs and symptoms are often rather non-specific unless you get a massive embolism happening very quickly. Moving on from that, you've also mentioned in your paper some of the radiological findings in atelectasis, especially if you've got sort of large-scale atelectasis. 
But are these investigations useful in more minor degrees of atelectasis, such as frequently seen after general anaesthesia? Well, well, you wouldn't normally do radiological investigations on otherwise straightforward post-operative patients. The reason for showing those films is that, in my experience, often anaesthetists and others are, are not particularly good at interpreting some of the more subtle, subtle radiological signs. But I mean, the, the time for getting an X-ray is when patients in respiratory failure don't quite know what's going on, really to get give some sort of idea of what's going on and look for reversible elements. I, you know, have they got a pneumothorax you could drain? Have they got pulmonary edema that you could treat with diuretics? Is is the X-ray such that they're developing ARDS or or other differential diagnoses? Or if it is one of these kind of labour collapses that we show in those nice series. You can probably be confident that if the patient can cough, can help with their own physiotherapy, can be mobilised, uh, those sort of things will probably resolve with time. Yes, and having discussed some of those sort of more severe complications that can arise from um, untreated atelectasis, we should perhaps move on now to discuss interventions that may be useful in the preoperative period to prevent this situation happening. So, which preoperative interventions are effective at reducing atelectasis? Well, I don't, I, there's not a lot of evidence in, in any of this, sadly, but, but I think it, it, common sense would suggest that if you can get the patient's respiratory disease, if they've got underlying disease, better controlled, i.e. if they've got a chest infection, you, you'd want to defer surgery if possible. If they've got heart failure, you'd want to defer surgery. If they can stop smoking, ideally you'd defer surgery. If they could work, lose weight significantly, you could defer surgery. Uh, so all of the, or, or, you know, if they've got bronchospasm that would improve with bronchodilators, so there's, particularly for the bigger surgery and the sicker patient, uh, I think it is worth getting physios to see them, perhaps getting a chest physician to see them if it's an elective procedure to try and optimise them as far as possible. But the reality is that a lot of those things uh, are not necessarily easy to do, and certainly in the context of emergency surgery, Whilst it's a nice idea, in practice, most of these things are not going to be modifiable in the time course available. And in the elective uh, surgery situation, what sort of time period should we think about delaying surgery for the, some of these interventions to be effective, do you think? Uh, well, nobody knows. I mean, people would say a few days smoke, uh, off smoking would help. But I mean, uh, ideally, I, I, I think, you know, you'd, you'd send the patient away to stop smoking, to lose weight, to get their bronchospasm better treated, their heart failure better treated and bring them back some weeks later if, you know, if it's something like elective hip or something, well, that, that's, that's probably perfectly doable. But in other situations for cancer surgery or something, you won't have that sort of time and you can only do what's available in the time frame set for you. Your paper also describes that using 100% oxygen at induction of general anaesthesia can actually exacerbate atelectasis, although... Often it's sort of anaesthetic conventional wisdom that this is helpful for the patient. So can you just explain to me the mechanism for this and that, and what we might do to prevent it? Well, we're talking about a short period of absorption atelectasis where if you're on 100% oxygen, you wash out all the nitrogen that splints the, or in theory splints the alveoli opening, you could get small areas of collapse. I mean, in reality, it's probably more of a theoretical than a a real problem. What it is worth, I think, thinking about is if you're in, inducing, say, somebody who's more morbidly obese, for instance, you, you might want to use mechanical ways to prevent atelectasis, i.e. inducing on CPAP or something. 
So I, I think as a concept, it's quite useful. Quite how dangerous it is dangerous it is say somebody giving some somebody three minutes of pre-oxygenation, which gives you know an increased safety margin. I think it's debatable, but I think conceptually, uh, it's quite a it's quite a useful concept for people to be carrying around because it, it might then encourage them to say, well, perhaps we are going to have problems with this patient, and perhaps we should be thinking about inducing them in the sitting up position with a CPAP circuit and all of that sort of stuff, which would mean that you maybe don't have to give 100% oxygen, but also would have much more effective pre-oxygenation and avoidance of collapsed units on induction. Moving on now to discuss some of the other interventions that we as anaesthetists may may do to prevent or minimise atelectasis. Um, during a general anaesthetic, obviously a variety of ventilation modes and strategies may be employed and these may have an impact on atelectasis. Your article sort of describes that optimal ventilation modes are not fully defined. However, there have been some sort of recent studies looking at this and I wonder if we might sort of discuss them briefly. So I was quite interested to read the improved trial that was published in the New England Journal of, of Medicine. So to briefly summarise this, it was a multi-centre trial with 400 patients who were undergoing major abdominal surgery and they were assigned to either receive conventional ventilation with 10 to 12 mils per kilo tidal volumes, no PEEP and no recruitment manoeuvres or a lung protective ventilation strategy with tidal volumes of six to eight mils per kilo peep and recruitment maneuvers every 30 minutes could you briefly describe for me what the main results of this study were well their conclusion was that using these slightly different interventions in ventilation that that they improved outcome and so they're they're suggesting that lung protective ventilation in say higher risk groups may be beneficial to the patient it's obviously a, a trial where there's quite a few differences between the different groups. Could, so could it be teased out whether it's the low tidal volumes, the, the PEEP or the recruitment moves that were the important factor or not really? Not really. I mean, this is, the, this is the bugbear of all these sort of studies is that you're effectively comparing a package of care. Are you not just it's one drug versus another? You're packaging a whole group of different respiratory variables you're hoping that the patients are balanced between the two groups, but there's always a danger there won't be. This is all an extension of what's happened in critical care, where you're dealing with a slightly different population of patients with already sick lungs who you're ventilating for rather longer and probably rather higher in pressures historically, where following the ARDS-NET studies, there appears to be benefit by using these lower tidal volumes. But even in critical care there is still a lot of argument about what is the optimum level of peak you know what is true low tidal volume what's intermediate tidal volume which patients benefit so although I think most people subscribe to the overall concept quite what you actually do in practice is is still unknown yes and and to move on from that there was a a further trial looking at sort of similar subject um, the Provillo trial they called it which was published in the Lancet this year and they, in their study, again, multi-centre, 900 patients this time undergoing major surgery. But all their patients received low tidal volumes. But one group was allocated to high PEEP, in which case it was pretty high at 12 centimetres of water, and recruit manoeuvres, whilst the other group was allocated to a low PEEP, which was um, less than two centimetres of, of water. And they seemed to get results that maybe conflicted with the improved trial. What, you know, how did you read the results of that study? Well, I, it, I mean, it's disappointing. and. But sadly, this, all these tiles are very much echo of what we've had in critical care for the last 15 or 20 years where you get 
what seems like a sort of plausible idea, reasonable hypothesis, you get a small, well, perhaps one trial that shows benefit and everybody gets terribly excited about it and changes practice and then people subsequently do further trials and, and the whole concept slowly gets sort of discredited. And I mean, we've had numerous false starts in critical care on all sorts of areas. And I mean, oscillation, which is another sort of side area, this is a good example, where, you know, initial enthusiasm, nitrous oxide, but, you know, and other things like that, where it sounded a great idea, but don't, don't actually show benefit in overall patient outcome. And so I, I think you you can either argue that the trials are different, the trial groups were different, or maybe it's the recruitment even rather than the PEEP that's important. So we're, you're left with really saying, well, nobody really knows, but I think it's reasonable to say some sort of low, lower tidal volumes are probably protective of, of the lung, particularly for sicker patients undergoing longer surgery. But more than that, I think the house is still out, really. And sort of, I suppose, moving on from that interoperative period, you know, what can we do postoperatively to minimise any clinical impact of atelectasis that's occurred during a general anaesthetic? Well, this is all about good aftercare and the ways forward are things like minimal access surgery so you don't have a big laparotomy or thoracotomy wound, good postoperative analgesia, earlier mobilization, perhaps tighter control of intraoperative fluids so you don't sort of drown the patient, quicker surgery, quicker anesthesia. Again, there's a whole package of maneuvers, but none of them, like physiotherapy, I don't think anybody argue physiotherapy is helpful, but there isn't really the evidence base there to say it should be twice a day, three times a day, four times a day. But I think we'd all accept those sort of type of interventions probably are helpful. Yes, it's, it's clearly a, an area where it, it's difficult maybe to find the evidence, but there's still things that we think are effective. We've already touched a bit about patients in, in critical care and ventilation strategies that might be effective in atelectasis there. You mentioned high-frequency oscillation ventilation. Do you think it's still an area that we should be researching that might have a place in management? Well, I mean, it, I mean there has there's been some good studies. I, I, I mean, we've used it quite extensively in Leeds, and I mean, there's no doubt that you can improve patients' oxygenation, but if you read the OSCAR study and other studies, I think it's fair to say there is still considerable doubt as to whether it improves patient outcomes. And there is some literature from Canada and things which suggests that it, it, it may actually make things worse. So it, its use really should, I believe, be restricted to kind of rescue therapies when the chips are really down and you're trying to get somebody to ECMO or something. Or maybe you could say it, it should its use should be reserved for further clinical trials. Yeah, it's also mentioned in your article that recruitment manoeuvres can be used and are thought to be effective at opening atelectatic alveoli. Are there any recommendations regarding frequency or timing of these manoeuvres? Not, not that I'm aware of. I, I think it's like so many things. It all intuitively makes common sense, but whether they should be done, you know, once an hour, once. A once four hourly, six hourly, or anything else. I mean, I mean, the reality is that I I think most centres don't really use them unless they're in trouble. I if the patient sort of happily sat on the ventilator on forty, fifty percent, and is otherwise sort of doing well, we're we're not necessarily doing money to any regular basis. But but when people do start to use them, is that when you know you've got critical hypoxemia and 
people are concerned that you're having to crank up the peak, crank up the FiO2 and so on. And are there any other in- interventions that may be helpful in managing atelectasis in the critically ill patient population? Well, we would, if if lung units don't re-expand with positive pressure ventilation, recruitment and things, there is a place for bronchoscopy to suck out mucus plugs and so on. You can, if you've got blood clot and stuff, you can supply suction directly to the tracheal tube. If it's foreign bodies, you can get people to do rigid scopes and things. You can inject saline to soften up secretions. You can give various sort of carbocysteine and things to mobilize secretions. So there's there's lots of different things you can do. But again, the proof of of any of those kind of techniques, I, I think, is still is still debatable, but they're, they're all things we use in, in selected situations. Yeah. As you say, it's probably down to that package of small interventions, but it's quite difficult to then tease out any evidence for them in a, in a trial, but it's about probably looking at your individual patient and seeing exactly what the causes of atelectasis in that patient are and, and treating them, perhaps. And sometimes, it, you know, all, all the patient needs at the end of, say, major surgery is a few hours ordinary ventilation and without the abdomen being compressed by the surgeons and some physio and sitting them up and all that stuff and lung units will will magically reopen and then you can get the patient extubated without any difficulties. So um, I think I'm going to bring our conversation to a close now. Um, So today we've summarised some of the key points of this article and with particular focus on perioptive interventions that may minimise atelectasis. It's clearly an area with lots of unanswered questions about what the optimum, particularly ventilatory strategies might be in an anaesthesia and intensive care and is a, an area of ongoing research. I would recommend to listeners to read the full article to get some more information about this topic. And just remains me to say thank you to Dr. Bodenham. Thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Seacup podcast.